Now, over the last three Sundays, Steve has covered a number of different aspects of prayer. Uh, in week one, after uh, the initial introduction, Steve focused on how we can realign our limited view of life, our limited view of our circumstances with God's perspective on it all. In week two, Steve focused on the partnership between prayer and action. Um, for me, that was summed up beautifully, so I make no apologies for repeating it, in this picture and this quote from Pope Francis. You pray for the hungry, then you feed them, that's how prayer works. And I just thought, yes, that is a beautiful summary of prayer and partnership, prayer and action working in partnership. In contrast, last Sunday was more enigmatic, focusing on the paradox of prayer. As Steve has already commented this morning, God, who is perfect, knows all things and will always act in accordance with his nature, his nature which is unchanging, which seems on the surface to beg the question, well, why bother to pray at all? Um, if you weren't able to be here last week, can I warmly recommend you have a listen to the podcast where Stephen will work his way through that paradox. It's a very good piece of teaching indeed. And for much of this week, certainly at the start of the week, I was rather uncertain as to what aspect of prayer I should pray about, uh, should speak on. And so I sort of went away and sat quietly reflecting on it, asking God about it. And while I was doing that, sitting quietly on my own, God sort of poked me, as he does sometimes, and he said, talk about what you're doing now. Talk about getting away on your own, talking, God, talking to God one-to-one. -one. So the title of this morning's teaching session in response to that is Prayer in Private. Do you know that the word pray, prayer, praying, occurs about 400 times, maybe more, across the, the pages of biblical writing? Just give you a few examples. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Solomon, Job, Gideon, Elijah, Elisha, Hezekiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Jesus himself, the apostles, Stephen, Paul, Peter. All are specifically mentioned along with many, many others. And in every, almost every single reference to them and their prayers, it is clear that these are times of privacy. A one-to-one -one is going on. Sometimes in the company of others, but often people entirely on their own. Abraham, a lone herdsman in the land of Canaan, he's been promised a nation by God, but he's desperate for a son and heir, and he makes solitary sacrifices under the desert sky. Moses, alone in the wilderness, standing barefoot before a burning bush, arguing with God. David, flat on the floor, praying for his son after being rebuked by Nathan. Solomon, in all his splendor and riches, yet made profoundly aware of the fleeting nature of existence. Jeremiah, 
perhaps the loneliest of all the prophets, haunted by apocalyptic visions of the destruction of Judah, but incapable of getting the nation to listen. Daniel, alone in his upper room, praying to God, despite the strictest instructions not to do so on pain of death. Jesus, alone on a hillside, talking with his father, whilst his disciples battle against the elements out on the lake. Stephen, praying for the forgiveness of those who are intent on his murder, even as the stones batter him to death. Paul in a prison cell, praying for the churches that he's founded across the Roman Empire and calling for a scribe to take down yet another letter. Private prayer is paramount. And yet, I stand here and I know that I find it hard to be consistent in it. And I don't think I'm alone in that. But I am certainly find it hard. And my lack of consistency is despite the multiple occasions when I personally have experienced particular blessing when praying privately. So this morning, what I'd like to do, it's an unusual piece of teaching this morning, I want to share some of my experiences of prayer. And I then want to draw upon their parallels from Scripture. Now I do so, let me make it plain, not to elevate my prayer life. That isn't what I'm trying to do. Um, it's, it, no, categorically. Nor am I trying to say, well I'm an expert in prayer, this is what you must do, you must do what I do. No. What am I doing then? Well I want to use my own experiences and the references from Scripture to show you that God is consistent and faithful and true. As Jean prayed just a few minutes ago, if we seek him, he will let himself be found. If we ask, he will respond to us. And that truth is the same for us all. That's the lesson I would like to settle over the morning. Now, as you know, most of you know, I came to faith here in this church in 1997, in June. I was baptised six months later in December 1997. <laughs> in that there are Um There's another photograph coming. A bit more wet. Um, I haven't aged at all. Stephen definitely has. <laughs> My daughter, Catherine, bless her, chose this card and sent it to me, or gave it to me on the morning to mark the occasion. Very biblical, isn't it? I am still delighted to be baby bear holding on to my father's hand. That's how I feel. I feel I'm, I'm little, he's big, he's got my hand. I'll walk bravely with him across the sands of time. After a few weeks after I came to faith, Clive, who was then the youth leader of the church, took a number of our teenagers to Soul Survivor near Shepton Mallet in Somerset. Now, you, most of you know that I was born, up, born and brought up as a Roman Catholic. And the idea of a Christian rock concert uh, was therefore wholly novel. Um, 
But I wasn't going to let the fact that my teenage years had gone by 35 years before to stop me at that moment. Um, I couldn't get time off work, so I decided I'd just go to Shepton Mallet for the day from here, as you do. <clears throat> so by the time I'd arrived, the morning worship session was already underway. They were about a couple of thousand teenagers, I suppose, and they were all giving their all in the main arena. So how on earth was I going to find Clive and the little group that were with him? You also entered the arena underneath the seating. It was in a cattle shed, and all the seats were on scaffolding. They were up there, and you came in underneath. Oh, well, how am I going to find them under here? And all this noise going on above. <clears throat> so I just sort of said, God, which staircase? <laughs> and then I ran up the first one. And I came up the staircase, and there was Clive, right there by the stairs. So I think, oh yes, thank you, God. A nice little God coincidence. But that isn't the point of the story. Later that day, <clears throat> I went to a teaching session in a marquee. There were two or three hundred, maybe, attending, and I squeezed into a middle row and sat to listen. But almost immediately, my mind became preoccupied by my two daughters. Lizzie, at that time, was 20, Catherine, 18, both at university at the start of their adult lives. And I put my head down, <clears throat> and I closed my eyes, and I just prayed for them to come to faith. I don't recall how long I was doing that, and I haven't got a clue what the talk was about. Um, but I suddenly became aware the meeting was breaking up, and people started to file out. Slow process, lots of mobile chairs, some of them sort of out of line, everybody squashing to get out. But suddenly in front of me, there was an older guy with a steward's badge on, and he wasn't leaving he was coming in, and he had his eye on me, and he was working his way towards me. And we stopped face to face, with people streaming by on either side. He didn't introduce himself as such, he just quietly said, God has given me a message for you. And I was sort of, ooh, um, startled and wary, I suppose. God knows you've been praying for his daughter, for your daughters. They are both safe in his hands. That's all he said. <clears throat> or rather, that's all I remember, he said. Because the next thing I knew, I was on the floor. I was lying down. And there were people around me trying to lift me up because <clears throat> I'd obviously passed out or whatever. So, after a minute or two, I recovered enough to literally run across the campground to Clive and to tell him what had happened and to ask him, well, what do I do? And Clive's wise reply to me has stayed with me these past 21 years. Nothing, he said. Do nothing, say nothing until it is fulfilled. That's what I did, until both Lizzie and Catherine came to faith. Lizzie, 12 months later, Catherine, two years after that. And my experience on that afternoon runs parallel to two people in the New Testament who were given prophetic words. These two are Zechariah and Mary. <clears throat> now, Zechariah, he was alone in the Holy of Holies. 
He was carrying out his prayer duties in the temple that day. Everybody else was waiting outside. And there in the smoke of incense, an angel gave him the news about his wife, Elizabeth, that she would become pregnant despite their age and would give birth to a boy. And they were going to call him, they had to call him John. He was going to be a new Elijah preparing the way for the Messiah. Now Zechariah is both doubting and then dumbstruck. He's unable to say anything until the prophecy is fulfilled. Mary is alone at home when the same angel appears to her, telling her she is to become the human mother of Christ. Now Mary's reaction was humble acceptance and then hurrying to her cousin's home to share the secret with the one person who was also involved, Elizabeth, also pregnant at the time. Now, I wrote about those two events in my book, The Gospel in Harmony. And if I may, because I feel it's really relevant, let me read these words to you, words that came to me when I sat quietly with Scripture, reflecting upon those events. And the poem is called Preparations. For 1,500 years the line of priests extends a sacred cord into the holiest place where incense burns and prayer ascends. And there, in silent gloom at altar's hand, the angel of the Lord appeared with words of prophecy and strict command. Then, six months' silence, broken by an angel's word, Fear not, most favoured lady, the choice of God is heard. Twin miracles announced, by divine will conceived, the desert harbinger of God's good plan and servant king, the son of man. And as their mother's shared embrace unites the unborn boys, flow silent words through time and space of love, of pain and untold joys. Neither Zechariah's doubting or Mary's acceptance change the divine will and purpose of God. Neither. Neither my prayers nor Clive's wise words or my subsequent action change the mind of God in regard to my daughter's coming to faith. That was God's good gift to them. But the insight afforded to me by the grace of God strengthen me in my early faith and, I believe, the faith of others with whom I shared that amazing prophecy since then. In 2012, my daughter Elizabeth, now 35, her husband Tim and their young children set off to Mozambique on mission. My wife was devastated by their choice. Mozambique's civil war still raged in pockets across the country. And I confess, I, I struggled too. I struggled with anxiety over their safety, the children's education, and our sense of loss at losing four of the grandchildren all at once. Pictures and news from afar did little to lessen our worries. Accommodation was cramped and primitive, water was scarce, food basic, very limited. The children were very fussy eaters, so they hardly ate a thing at first. Everything was covered in dust or drowned in mud. And I remember a short video clip sent to us. There's a picture from it. 
of Ethan waiting, he was eight, waiting at a pump to get some water. There were a lot of people there, all pushing and jostling, and that's the way it was in the culture. And Ethan, by then painfully thin, polite, very English, waiting forever in the queue, and never got a chance. Even now, six years on, the memory of it can make me cry. Don't know why, it's six years ago. Not there anymore. <clears throat> I spent many a night in tearful prayers for their safety and well-being. After nine months or so, they received an amazing gift from here in the church of funding to buy a second-hand people carrier, big enough to carry them and which Tim could also use in his ministry with young men. So he, could, he was, a, he was look, teaching young men in apprenticeship skills, and they all needed to get to work. And so he was able to use the vehicle for that. The only snag with this gift of the car was the car was in Maputo, which was the capital, in the south. And they were in Pemba in the far north. The distance, a mere two and a half thousand kilometers. And only one road. And on that road, there were areas where violence, murder, carjacking, civil war raged across the road. And cars were very often attacked and burnt and people killed. So Liz and Tim wisely decided the only way to go and get the car was to fly to Maputo, collect the car, and then drive back via South Africa, Botswana, Malawi, uh, Zambia, and Malawi, crossing back into Mozambique in the north. So they went from the south of Mozambique into South Africa, up through Botswana, Zim, uh, touched into Zimbabwe and into Zambia, crossed Zambia, into Malawi, back into, uh, back into Mozambique. Um, this would avoid the violence areas. But it made for a car journey of four and a half thousand kilometers. So I decided there and then that I was going to pray for them every night until they got back safely. Tim had a satellite app on his phone which tracked their sort of geo-position as they travelled. Messages flowed along the route. And it wasn't all hardship. That would be wrong of me. They saw elephants and rhinoceroses and hippos and giraffes. They went to the Victoria Falls too. But all the time my heart was for their safety. And they travelled vast distances on unmade roads with nothing Nothing at all all around them, just the plains stretching away. It took nine weeks. Night after night I prayed. Night after night I stuck pins in a map. And nine weeks later those prayers were answered. Now, I'm reminded of a much deeper faithfulness of persisting in prayer. And that faithfulness is Jeremiah. He, day after day, prayed to God. And he heard God's heart for Judah night after night. But God shared with Jeremiah the knowledge that Judah wouldn't listen. And that the nation was going to fall into captivity in Babylon. And the temple would be demolished, destroyed. How glad I am that God never gave me any warnings of disaster. Instead, I found my prayers profoundly reassuring and steadying. And they enabled me to comfort and support Sue, 
who didn't have any reassurance at all. Jeremiah did not give up. And at the end, he had an amazing and uplifting vision of the future. In his private prayers, God told him that, that captivity would not be the last word. After 70 years, the people would be allowed to return and rebuild. And so it was. Even though Jeremiah himself didn't live to see it. Sometimes the answers to our prayers lie beyond our lives. And the lesson from Jeremiah, therefore, is one of faithfulness in prayer, no matter the adversity. Faithfulness. Okay, so two little examples of private prayer. But I don't want to convey, in a sort of hidden way, that private prayer is superior to praying together. No, I don't mean that at all. It's not, in, it's not superior or inferior. They're different. And my last testimony, story, comes from a time of shared prayer. 2013-14, I would think. We were holding a prayer evening here in church, and we'd broken up into smaller groups to pray together. My recollection was that I was standing at the back, sort of over in that area. In the group were Carol and Jean. There may have been others with us, but I can't remember. I remember you both. If there were others standing with us who, who do remember, please speak to me. I apologize for forgetting. We were encouraged to take time to wait on God, rather than just to present our needs to him. The band was led by Tim. And they were playing as we prayed. And at that time, standing in that group, God gave me a very powerful and particular vision. I wasn't any longer in the church. I was definitely outside somewhere. I had a sense of, of open space, a darkness, open space behind me. It, not, not anything in particular, it just was open. And it wasn't frightening. I was with my back to this space, but right in front of me, when I focused my eyes, were two vast doors. They were, they were like giant's doors. They were from a sort of children's fairy tale, vast things. They, I, sort of, I remember looking up, and the doors went up, just until they disappeared, just going up and up. And they were carved. I put my hands on them. They were sort of lumpy. Carved, yes. Knobbly. But shiny, as if they were made of, sort of like, something like bronze. They didn't have anything particular on the carvings. I couldn't say what, what it was. But I can remember the thought, well, how do I get them open? They're huge. And there weren't any handles. And I pushed the right door. And to my surprise, it moved really slowly and easily and silently, and it began to open. And as the door began to open, a, a truly brilliant light began to shine through the crack. 
The light was so bright you couldn't see anything in the light. Um, you couldn't see through the light. It was just intense light. And the door was now wide enough for me to squeeze through the gap. So I did. And stood in this white. That's the only thing I can describe. I was just standing in white, white space. There wasn't a particular sound. I couldn't say it was silent or noisy. No idea. But I was overwhelmed by delight. <laughs> uh, joy. Uh, just overwhelmingly happy. And I just got the giggles. I got, I started to laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. I couldn't stop. And I haven't, heavens knows what anybody else in the, in the evening meeting thought. I just stood at the back laughing. And this incredible light and me feeling incredibly happy. And eventually, this rational bit of me got the upper hand and said, you're making a fool of yourself. Stop it. <laughs> and so I did stop. And I have a very distinct sense of the door going boom and shutting. And I was back out beyond the doors. Now you might say, well, what's that got to do with private prayer? You were in a gathering after all. Yes, I was. But it was still entirely personal and private. Nobody else saw the vision. Nobody else knew what the heck I was doing. Um, I was probably making some people feel rather uncomfortable. I don't know. And yet, in some way, I also believe that the collective worship space was relevant and important. It, it was the context for that vision for me. Okay. In Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is given a very, very specific vision of heaven and the greatness of God. Isaiah's reaction was not one of laughter, was it? It was one of woe. Woe to me, he says. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He was just overwhelmed by his sense of unequalness to the revelation of God. And he saw immense and detailed visions which completely overwhelmed him. But, there's a really important little but here. This is 700 years before the time of Christ. But 700 years before, God wants Isaiah to know that his forgiveness is foundational to who he is. Isaiah's guilt is very specifically taken away. An angel brings coals, burning coals, and places them in some way on him, on his mouth, and cleanses him. This amazing vision of being purified. All made right, forgiven, total. And he is then commissioned to go and be the prophet to Israel. Now, I'm, I'm not saying I'm Isaiah. I'm just saying that God likes giving us visions of himself and visions of things that are important to us. Over 20 or 30 years or so, 20 years or so, that I've been here, there have been in this church times of very notable visions which spoke into the circumstances of the church and our lives at the time. Visions are personally, deeply personal encounters. And in some cases they are entirely private. 
But on other occasions, as in Isaiah's case, they have a wider relevance, meaning, purpose. And that's been the case for us as a church. I believe that the vision of the doors and the space was an encouragement to me at the time. And so it's proved to be. When I'm down, I can draw on the memory of that. And I am powerfully lifted up within my spirit. Okay. So what can we conclude from three little stories and the wider biblical lessons? Firstly, ah, I should have put that on before. Firstly, personal and private prayer is a key to unlocking our relationship with God. God wants us to be near him. He wants to listen to us. He wants, to talk, he wants us to talk to him in person. There aren't any greater prayers and lesser prayers. We're all the same. And God wants us all to be as close to him as we can. Now, like all relationships, it takes time to become, we, we take time to become at ease in a relationship. You know, if you, the only way you get to know somebody was to meet them across a crowded room it's likely to be unsatisfactory if you never went any further. It would just be a glance across a crowded room. That would be that. You may first encounter God through the ministry of others. But in the final event, it's down to each of us individually to choose to take things further. Second lesson. Personal prayer contains common threads. Prayer contains common threads. A heart for thanksgiving, moments of the prophetic, the call to persevere in times of anxiety and uncertainty, the beauty of visions and pictures which speak of things beyond our knowing. And where do these derive from? They derive from a faithful and unchanging God who loves us all equally to the very fullness of his being and whose heart and desire is that we know him, trust him, meet with him until we can be with him forever. And thirdly, prayer takes patience, waiting on God, listening for him as well as talking to him. It is by its nature a personal discipline, but it will become familiar territory through regular practice. It can be practiced alone, or it can be practiced together. It matters not. It is my hope and prayer that in sharing some of my experiences, that would encourage all of us to become bolder in sharing our prayer testimonies with each other. Because I actually am firmly of the view that testimony, personal witness, is an amazing catalyst for growing faith. I am sure that all of you have experiences of prayer which are a delight to you and are profound. And that if we had the courage to share aspects of them, that would encourage us as a body, as a people of God. So to end this morning, I'm going to provide us with a brief opportunity both to be quiet and to pray quietly, personally, 
and then an opportunity for anybody to share anything that they would like. I've also, last week at our life group, we were talking on a parallel subject, and Jill gave a personal prayer testimony, which was amazingly, to me, it was amazingly striking. And I, again, this is an example of where a testimony to someone also speaks to others. And Jill very kindly has said, after we've had time to be quiet for a few minutes, she will summon up enough courage and come and share her vision with us as a first base. But others may well. I'd like to invite you all, if you wish, to sh share a few words if you like. So, if it's, Tim, you'd like to come back and the band. And they're going to play us an instrumental piece. So we're not going to sing. We can stay sitting down and close our eyes. Um, what I'd like you to do is to, if you can, not worry who's sitting to your left or your right. Um, just focus on God. And remember, as we seek him, he will allow himself to be found. As we talk to him, he will respond. So we're going to do that now. 